This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington with former Senator, former Secretary of State, John Kerry. Thank you for being with us. Happy to be with you. Thank you. You are raising the alarm bells on climate change. We want to talk about the projects you're working on now, but some history. How did we reach this point? By indifference and by um, self-satisfaction and a combination of lying and purposeful delay put in place by large, powerful interests from the Koch brothers to fossil fuel industry to others who have denied science and denied reality for a long period of time. And I know you're saying that we need need to act now, but if you could go back and look at moments that we should have acted, what would you point to? Well, we should have acted uh, back in 1988 when James Hansen first testified before the Congress and said this is happening and we had a chance to get way ahead of it. We should have acted based on the 1992 meetings that I attended along with Al Gore, Tim Wirth, a group of senators in Rio when we had a Rio conference and George H.W. Bush signed a voluntary agreement, uh, but nobody did the voluntary work. And then we came into Kyoto, 1997. It was mandatory, but it couldn't pass the Senate because the coal industry and others stood up against anything mandatory. So we've got a constant special interest battle that has pushed back. Uh, Naomi Oreskes, a professor of history of science at Harvard, has written a terrific book called The Merchants of Doubt. And if you if you look at the history going back all the way to Rachel Carson and Silent Spring and pesticides, uh, you will see how there have been liars, distorters, procrastinators paid for within major industries that kept us from doing the things we knew we should do or that made sense in terms of science. To wit, pesticides, Rachel Carson ultimately won the battle against uh, pesticides um, and at a huge cost to herself. But uh, we won that battle ultimately and proved that the delayers were lying. Then we had, of course, the great nicotine battle with R.J. Reynolds and the industry, which hid the known results of smoking and cancer and that linkage. We had flammable uh, retardant, flame retardant, and pajamas, same battle. Acid rain, same battle. And now in climate, same battle. And you will see a continuum of some of the same scientists going up through this who are paid for by big industry, not to win the day in terms of their arguments, but to create doubt. And there are memos of lawyers and executives within these uh, entities, uh, which are on record now, which talk about that strategy of creating doubt. That's why we're where we are, because people have been purposefully led to uh, a set of non-facts, a set of distortion claiming it's a hoax. I mean, President of the United States, until literally in the last week, the first time I've ever seen him not say it's a hoax. He used to say it's a Chinese hoax. But still, uh, our country, the United States of America, I was in Madrid at the conference where we tried to advance the metrics by which we measure the reductions. We couldn't do it. Why couldn't we do it? Three countries basically stopped it. Brazil, Australia, which is now burning up, and the United States of America led by Donald Trump. So that's why we're where we are. Let's talk about the Paris Climate Agreement. You're one of the key figures behind that agreement. It essentially says what? The Paris Agreement, first of all, again, another lie from Donald Trump, who stood up when he pulled out of the agreement. He said, this place is too great a burden on us. No, not true, lie. 
it doesn't present a burden on us because we wrote the plan. In fact, Paris, you say, what did it stand for? It was every country, all 196 countries that signed the agreement, wrote their own plan. That's how we got a plan passed, because each country would do what it could to reduce its emissions, and because we'd had the experience of Kyoto, where you couldn't pass a mandatory reduction. The theory of Paris was 196 countries all moving in the same direction simultaneously will send a a message to the marketplace, the biggest market in the world, energy market, that we're all doing the same thing. And that would spur investment. Well, guess what? In the first year after Paris, $358 billion was invested in alternative renewable sustainable energy. In the second year, the same thing. First time ever, more money was invested in sustainable energy than in fossil fuel. So it was working, began to move that marketplace. Along came Donald Trump, pulls out of the agreement. The result is uh, that has stalled, that movement has stalled. So today, despite all we know from the science, emissions are going up in America, emissions are going up in Europe, emissions are going up in China, emissions are going up in India, all around the world. So people need to get angry Because these folks aren't serious. No government in the world is getting the job done at this point in time. And that's why I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, and others are dedicating time to this. These kids in the street who are demonstrating, asking adults to be adults, are right. And they don't have a vote. And the scientists have told us, you guys have another 10 years to get this done. The 12-year period that the last uh, UN report said, to avoid the worst damages, not to solve it. But we're not doing that. We're on track right now uh, to hit 3.7 degrees of warming, even if we did everything that's in Paris, and we're not. So we're actually on track to go up to four, four and a half degrees, which scientists will tell you is the difference between life and civilization and uh, where we are today. Why do you think a young teenager from Sweden, Greta Thunberg, has resonated in this debate. Because, and have you met her? Because, yes, I have met Greta, and I've spent time with her. I'm very impressed by her. But she's, she, she is there at the right, the right moment. Suddenly, after all the warnings, after many, a great increase in the awareness of the challenge, uh, she is scolding and calling out the so-called leaders for not getting the job done. And because the damage is rising now at a rate where people see the negative impacts, the, the confluence of the lack of effort, the awareness that is growing among people all around the world of what is happening, the increased evidence of what is happening is combined with a moment where a young woman goes on strike outside of school and it struck the imagination of people and struck a chord because there's a lot of frustration. This past week in Boston, in Washington, D.C., temperatures in the low to mid-70s in January. But critics of climate change say that's just a different weather pattern. It's not climate change. Your response is what? Well, they're, not, they're ignoring science when they say that. The scientists will show you how weather patterns have changed because of increased heat. The ocean consumes about 90% of the heat that comes into the earth uh, uh, through sun and through the warming. And, and so the chemistry of the ocean, ask any marine biologist, they will tell you that the chemistry of the ocean is changing faster today than it has in 50 million years. 
We're seeing a warming. We're seeing acidification levels go up. The acidification levels, if you look at crustaceans, for instance, clams, uh, you know, lobsters, crabs, so forth, you will see changes in, in the, their skin. And, and experiments have been run where you increase the pH, which is the acidity of the water, you'll see the clams grow. Same clams, same time, put in different water, they grow to be different sizes. And, and you can see the impact that it's having on the ocean itself. You have changes in uh, phytoplankton. You have changes in the krill that feed the whales. I mean, you have huge changes taking place in the ocean. The coral reef bleaching that takes place and so forth, which is a living di- uh, organism that is dying because of what's happening. You also have an increase in moisture because of the warming. When you have that increase in moisture, you then have an increase in growth that comes from the increased level of rain, and that increased growth becomes the tinder for fires when you go through your drought cycle. So these cycles are now very clearly traceable, understandable, and they are... Uh, the result of this rapid warming taking place. I flew over the, the I, I dropped down on the ice sheet. We actually landed in a helicopter on the ice sheet. And uh, we looked down a hole where you, you see 100 feet down this gushing river underneath the uh, ice sheet that's melting. Sci- some scientists are afraid the ice sheet could actually be like a like grease on a slide, it, it forces you know the ice slips down. You have a massive break. Just be clear, in Antarctica. In an, no, this is in the Arctic, um, where I went with the foreign minister of Norway. We went together and we looked at these different things that were happening. Um, but eighty six million metric tons of ice was dropping off, calving as they call it, uh, dropping into the fjord and going out to melt. Because the scientists in the Arctic said to me, Mr. Secretary, if you really want to know and understand what's happening with climate, you've got to go to Antarctica. So I did. Before I left, I, be- I went, became the first Secretary of State to ever go to Antarctica, met with all our scientists and other country scientists, the con- scientists there from about 20 countries. And they're all doing research and agree that what they're seeing is the canary in the coal mine. And you had a whole area of the ice sheet in Antarctica break off called the Larsen Ice Sheet, floated out to the ocean to melt. And now they're worried that the whole West Antarctic Ice Sheet, three miles of ice, is threatened because water that is warmer is spilling over the continental shelf, going underneath the ice and creating enormous instability in it. So... Um, all of these things are, are, are really connected. The fires in California, sure, they've had a fire before, and yeah, but never like this, never like these. Uh, they've had mudslides, never like, I mean, you know, there's a difference between the um, levels of what is happening now in the science. Uh, the warming is appreciably measurable, and the rate of it is understandable. We're being told by thousands of scientists, the world's best scientists, life dedicated to to this understanding. They're saying, this is happening, mankind is doing it, and here's the evidence, and look at what's happening, and here's what happens if you don't do something. Well, guess what? We buy insurance for our automobiles in case we have an accident. Most people don't. You buy insurance for your home that might light on fire, but most homes don't. You buy insurance for your life, and people have a measured uh, you know, way to approach uh, taking care of their families and protecting them. We're not taking care of planet Earth. We're not protecting what is defined not as 50%. It's going to happen. This is happening. They can't tell you every bit of the pace. 
They can't tell you every bit of the rate of damage or the interconnectivity of it. But common sense tells you if this is what is happening, we should be responding. And we are not responding with the intensity we need to. The United States is 15% of all the emissions in the world. China is almost 30%, 29%. You put the two of us together and, you know, you're already around 50. And then you go up, well, Europe's another, what, 12% of that or so. And, and then you've got Japan and all these countries, very measurable. Korea, Japan, Indonesia, United States, India, Russia, you know, Europe as a whole. They're responsible. We are responsible. Those countries, 20 countries, make up about 85% of all the emissions in the world. But at what price? Because, as you know, the Green New Deal estimated between 50 to $80 trillion. First of all, do you buy that number? And is there a price tag to all of this? No. The, first of all, this is just basic economics. Uh, Sir Nicholas Stern, a great uh, economist, uh, London School of Economics, has written a book on it. Others have written books on it. Uh, this is an economic opportunity for all of us to actually make money, create jobs, and do better. There are a lot of scare tactics out there, but there are about 62 million jobs estimated that will be created if we do the right thing between now and 2030. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, solar is now able to do a contract at about three cents a kilowatt hour, 2.9 cents. I've seen some places a little higher elsewhere. And you have a solar house in Massachusetts? Well, I have a solar field for the house. Yeah, I put it on the ground, but it's uh, it's a 25 uh, kilowatt field and it has the ability to feed in, take care of my house on a daily basis and actually feed the grid. And, and I can pull out my phone and pull up an app and it'll tell you exactly what it's producing as we're sitting here right now. That's the future, in my judgment. But, but solar, anybody will tell you, solar is now cheaper than coal. And it doesn't cure everything because you have places where the sun may not shine or a day when it doesn't. But you have to have an integrated system where you have solar, you have hydro, you have sustainable fuel, biofuel of some kind. You have natural gas as a bridge only. A lot of people are very wary of building out a lot of infrastructure for gas because it's still a fossil fuel. But if we get battery storage that could go for 20 to 30 days or so, this is solved. This problem is solved. Because then you can just have transmission that goes from one place to another. If you have battery storage for that amount of time, you could have a smart grid with artificial intelligence that sends your energy wherever it needs to go. And you could build that out over a global basis. So we do have solutions looking at us. Some people are still chasing fusion. Some people will tell you we need to have modular fourth-generation nuclear. Uh, I personally uh, am in favor of developing at least... Uh, a group of uh, demonstration projects of fourth generation so that we know what we're dealing with. But it doesn't have the dangers of the prior generations. It's safe. It's small. It's manageable. It's standardized. It could be standardized. You could lower the cost. I mean, there are all kinds of ways of approaching this. We're just not doing it, Steve. I mean, we're not doing this. There's a book by Paul Kennedy, a professor at Yale, called Engineers of Victory. And it's worth a read uh, simply to understand how we won World War II. Decisions had to be made that guaranteed we had the ability to win. And in 1943, it wasn't clear the Allies were going to win. So at mid-level and upper-level, decisions were made that made it certain we could win, that 
got the superiority of the air, that understood how to control the seas, that knew how to break through on the defense barrier Hitler had built along the French coastline and so forth. That's how we did it. It required those decisions, engineers of victory. We do not have the kind of assemblage and management of the engineers of victory we need for global climate change, which is why I've created this thing called World War Zero, because we need to treat this as if we're at war. The automobile manufacturers need to be brought to the White House, sit them down, figure out what do you need to go quicker? Do we need an incentive? Do we need a tax structure? How do we get the demand in the marketplace to move up so you're able to feel the market is there and you can move there without losing jobs? A, a person who makes a car today in South Carolina or in some other state in America is the same person who can build a car that just has a battery instead of an internal combustion engine. It's not as if life is going to suddenly be shredded by making these choices. I just came from Iowa fields of windmills. Those windmills are terrific. The farmers are making money. They're leasing them to the energy company. The energy company produces electricity. It's clean. Uh, but we can't send it to all parts of the world because we don't have a national grid. So the president ought to be summoning the utilities and the great builders of our country and the governors and the regulators and saying, we're going to build a national grid. Now, how are we going to streamline this? And how do we make this happen for Americans fast enough that we're the leader in the world? That's leadership. That's how we went to the moon. That's how we invented the Internet. We need the same kind of effort to win this battle. Let me remind our listeners, we are talking with former Secretary of State John Kerry, former Massachusetts Senator, 2004 Democratic presidential nominee. I want to go back to World War Zero. It's available on the web. How did you come up with that? Well, we, you know, I started with the idea of no planet B. And then some friends of mine said, well, it begins with the word no. And you don't want no in the concept. Uh, you want to be more affirmative. So we really worked hard. Uh, a fellow named John Marshall, who's volunteered a lot of time at Lippincott Advertising Agency, done a lot of research. They'd done some focus grouping. We worked at it. And, um, you know, the name surfaced in those discussions. And we really thought about it hard. My instant reaction was, wait a minute. I, I, was in more, <laughs> I, I came back and fought against the war. And I don't want something with the word war in it, et cetera. But ultimately, we settled on it because that's where we are. People have declared war on science. People have declared war on facts, on common sense, on evidence. And frankly, for those people who lost their homes in California and the people who died in the fires and people who have died in mudslides, et cetera, they've declared war on people because they're not listening to the scientists. So we have to break that logjam somehow, and uh, I think it, it, it will only be solved with the whole world being at the table, therefore world. It is a war for the reasons I described, and we have to, as I said, have a war footing in our own thinking about how we're going to deal with it, because the time frame is short, and zero means by 2050 at the latest, we need to move to a low-carbon, no-net-carbon economy where we have zero emissions net. And that's what we can, and that's what I hope we will get to. I think we'll get to it one day, Steve. What I'm not convinced of yet is that we'll get there fast enough to prevent the worst damage. Let me conclude in our remaining moment to talk about politics. First of all, what do you think of Donald Trump as president? I, I think Donald Trump uh, lets the American people down substantively uh, in terms of candor, in terms of character, every single day. 
There are lies on a daily basis. Lies about foreign policy, where we almost went to war with Iran, but the president uh, lied about uh, how that unfolded. It wasn't an imminent decision. It wasn't something where they had clear uh, clear uh, intelligence that required them to go to the Congress and say, at least to the Gang of Eight, here's what we're contemplating. In June, we've now learned of last year, the president made the decision apparently on the golf course to go out after Soleimani. And everything has been staged and planned since then. Uh, so, again, a cover-up. Uh, I think rule of law has been tested by a president who doesn't uh, use his Justice Department as the impartial entity it ought to be. Uh, I think anybody who's paid $130,000 to a porn star to hush them up before an election is guilty of a crime. I think there are clear examples of obstruction of justice. I think there are uh, – there may not be a conspiracy, but there are clear examples of, of collusion – with Russia, meeting in your headquarters with Russians to get dirt on a candidate is collusion. May not be a conspiracy, but it's collusion. So I, I think Americans are tired of this extraordinary uh, uh, barrage of, of, of tweeting at the highest level of government policies that include killing people and, and going to war. And I think the American people expect better and need better right now because these challenges we face, the challenges globally of nuclear weapons once again becoming an issue, the challenge of – and not just from Iran. I'm talking about Russia and, and Pakistan and India and other countries where proliferation is now a challenge. North Korea, he's got nothing out of North Korea. He got tiny – nothing really fundamentally substantive out of this China trade deal. The American worker is going to be hurt by this deal. I mean, you can run through a long list of things that uh, I think raise questions uh, legitimately about this presidency. And, and uh, America needs an adult, not a man-child, as president. Finally, you have endorsed former Vice President Joe Biden. We covered you in New Hampshire and in Iowa. You know a thing or two about the Iowa caucuses and getting the nomination. How does Joe Biden get there? What's your advice to his campaign? Well, I think he's doing. I think he's doing well in Iowa. I just spent a few days out there. I think he's growing and coming on at the right moment. Uh, I think he's the only person ready for this moment, who has been for eight years sitting with the president of the United States in our National Security Council meetings, helping the president with the loneliest decisions of a president of the United States. I think that he's uh, the one person with the gravitas, as well as the relationships and the the network to be able to immediately reach out to leaders of other countries and bring them to the table in a way that will restore American credibility, which we need. I'm not, nothing against any of the other candidates. I know them. I like them. There are some very bright people, capable people running. But there is a difference when you enter the White House. There is a difference in that, in that uh, situation room, in knowing who to talk to and knowing where to go. I mean, it just takes people a period of time. Even Barack Obama would tell you that. And I don't think we have that kind of time. I think we need to move immediately. I think he is uh, the person most likely to defeat President Trump. You can look at the polls. There are states where he runs ahead of Trump, where other candidates do not, or runs even with them. And I think when you get to the one-on-one, Joe has the ability to be able to uh, stand up to this president. He's a man of character. He's withstood things that... Uh, most people couldn't. We're, we're losing his wife and child when he was 29 years old to 
uh, having an aneurysm, nearly losing his own life, coming back, and then losing his son, Bo. And I think every parent in the world, the greatest fear you have is losing a child. And he's gone through that twice. So this is a man who doesn't have to run, but the moment has called to him, and uh, I support him because I know his character and I know what he's prepared to do. You are lecturing at Yale. You're at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Outside the issues that we've been talking about, what's John Kerry up to these days? Well, that's what I'm up to. <laughs> I'm a hell of a lot busier than I thought I'd be, and I'm on too many airplanes and flying around. I'm heading off to the uh, to Berlin, actually, on Monday to uh, help... Uh, give the Kissinger Award, Kissinger Prize to Angela Merkel of Germany and I'll have the privilege of speaking at that ceremony and uh, making that award and then I go to the World Economic Forum and then from there on to uh, probably back to Iowa for a day or two and maybe New Hampshire. There's a lot at stake in this, Steve. I think you know that. I can't, I mean, we all in politics always say, ah, this is the most important election in our lifetime. And I said it. But this one truly is. In my lifetime, I can't think of an election more important. Uh, The United States of America is at stake in this election in big-time terms. Uh, We cannot have a president who scoffs at rule of law. We cannot have a president who literally doesn't read, who isn't properly briefed, who has no process in the national security apparatus. So last people to talk to him last in, first out. It's, uh, uh, this is unique, and people know it. People on the Hill know it. Senators know this. Republican senators know this. And it's also a moment, sadly, where our institutions have not yet worked uh, uh, up to the par that we expect, the United States Senate particularly. I think the House has been strong and purposeful, but the Senate... It's not the 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 entity that our founding fathers envisioned was was the one that got six years for a term, purposefully to allow senators to stand back from the passions of the moment and not be like the House and respond with the thoughtfulness that's due to the world's greatest deliberative body. It is not the world's greatest deliberative body. It doesn't even deliberate today. It doesn't do much except pass a few judges when the majority leader decides to have it do that. And otherwise, we don't even pass a budget. We pass a continuing resolution. So I think uh, what John McCain, my friend, used to always say about getting back to the regular order is critical. And we need to do it. John Kerry, former Secretary of State, we thank you for being with us. Great to be with you. Thank you. And a reminder, this podcast is available on the free C-SPAN radio app or wherever you download your favorite podcast. We thank you for listening.